Hi, this is Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and you've been listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. don't want to break in space is the toilet so i do <laughs> i do i do remember going oh um but it's funny i hadn't thought of this for a while but i do remember screwing up the plumbing one day going <laughs> you then i threw the switch and they looked at it and it ended up being okay <laughs> uh, good because you were about to have a lot of unhappy uh yep. companions yeah. up there <laughs> yeah you're you drop everything else until you get that fixed so. <laughs> Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. This is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the GBB Podcast, as well as in your ears right now. Hey, I just wanted to tell you something. Um, do you know what would really help us out? If you're a listener of this show, or if this is your first time listening, I don't know, maybe you feel like going and writing an iTunes review on your first listen without <laughs> even you know, hearing what we have to present to you, but we would love it if you would go to iTunes and write us a review. We are feeling kind of lonely on our review page because we have like 15 reviews and we've been going for three years and we need reviews. (laughs) And, you know, we say that we were talking offline. There's like, we're just as guilty as anybody else for not leaving reviews, you know, every, and people, authors say that, you know, they're like one thing that really helps more than buying the book is leaving an Amazon review. You know, like those things really help getting, they push the algorithms that work to like get it in front of more eyeballs. And it's the same thing with, with podcasts, you know, you leave a review, you get, you know, it shows that people are listening to it. So like Apple or whoever pushes it in front of more eyeballs. And I am guilty of not leaving reviews. No, I'm trying to be better about it. So, um, you know, yeah. we're not just, you know, asking you to do something that we don't do, but. Right. So at the start of every episode from now on, I'm just going to gently remind you, we're not going to go into this big thing not, every time. Hey, we leave a review. Let's talk about it. For you're just going to beg. And but, that, you know, that'll be it. Uh, yes. Every week I'm going to gently remind you slash beg. <laughs> So if you, if, the, if you are a long time listener and you haven't left that review yet, we'd love to, we'd love for you to go do that. And if this is your first time, go ahead and listen to the whole thing. Listen to a few more episodes and then go leave the review. Cause once you've listened to more than one, you need to go leave the review and, and it's got to be a five star. Of so. course, not anything less than <laughs> we're finding where you live and we're coming after you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this week on the podcast, we have, Another we've we've had the pleasure of interviewing a few NASA astronauts uh, so far, and uh, Jamie, you might know the exact number, but I know we've had at least three or four. Of course, maybe. you're going to ask me the Am exact wrong? number. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't a know. Couple. The exact we've had number. a couple. I know. We've had um, a few. Yeah, but it's all you know. We can, you can never have too many. I mean, right? Right. Of course. No. So no, Not absolutely. So uh, we're talking to somebody, and I am I so. Let me back up. About a year ago, um, I probably should find the exact episode number, but I went to um, a premiere here in D.C. at the Air and Space Museum for an IMAX film called A Beautiful Planet. Uh, And it was an IMAX film that was filmed on the space station by astronauts. Um, And at the premiere were three of the astronauts who did a lion's share of that film work. And Terry Virts, um, our guest today, was one of those astronauts. So I met him then, um, you know, met in quotes, you know, it's like as much as you can meet somebody on uh, the red carpet and then at a uh, cocktail hour afterwards when you go up and say like, you know, fumble right. like you're an astronaut and I love you. Um, <laughs> but uh, that that film was really really good. Um, just because if you ever seen an IMAX film, you know, like the old ones are really famous for you know uh, the ones that just constantly play at least here at the Smithsonian. They're they're great, but they're kind of dated at this point. Um, right. And you know, a lot of the uh, 
the footage is not as good, I guess, in, as it could be. And so this film was filmed within like the last few years. And so it's like top of the line equipment, top of the line quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it was just remarkable. And it, you know, it, as much as an IMAX film can make you feel like you're somewhere, like you felt like you were on the space station. Right. So that was really cool. Um, if you want to go back and listen to our chat, that that was episode 66. I just looked it up. So it was a while ago. Okay. Um, but you go back and you can hear more about that film um, because we talk a little bit about that today, but that's not certainly what we focus on. Um, right. So, so you had, uh, you had the pleasure of interviewing on solo on this one and, what what did you guys talk about? Just about his career and his photography? Yeah, so he has a new book out with National Geographic. It's sort of like a it's a gorgeous oversized hardcover. It's kind of you know like a coffee table photography book. Um, so in addition to some of the cinematography he did for that IMAX film, he was always mm-hmm. before even going to space. He was uh, a photographer, an amateur photographer, I guess. Um, and so when he was up there, every chance he could. Get, he just took pictures um and apparently he took more than three hundred thousand pictures while he was up there uh and i know you were just astonished like how, how did he store all those like what well, like, yeah he must have just had a had a crap ton of little memory drives i, right. I wish i'd asked him. well in in a camera like a ds an slr some of the shutters sometimes are only rated for a hundred thousand act like yeah. clicks so he must have had maybe multiple cameras. I'm sure he and- did. Um, he was up there for 220 days. 200. Okay, Wikipedia yeah. is telling me 213 days. Um, that's not all combined. That's I mean that's all combined. That's over a couple missions. Um, but still, I would imagine over 200 plus days, you could take a ton of pictures with multiple cameras. Oh, um, and so this yeah. book is it's not just a photo book. Like it's, there's a lot of text in here and he, he talks about, you know, his career and his, 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 the missions that he was on. And, um, a lot of the types of things we talk about in our interviews, like, you know, what's it like to do a spacewalk? You know, like, how do you talk about something like that to people who don't know what it would ever feel like? So, um, it's just a fascinating book about his experiences as an astronaut looking down on the planet and looking at down on the planet, not just sort of as a scientist or as a human, but also as a photographer. So we talk a little bit about this in the interview too. It's like how he could see the world in colors. You know, when you you float over, you know, obviously you think about, you know, Antarctica or or the Arctic or mm-hmm. clouds, all those whites. Um, but there was like Australia, he said, was very red, you know, and you go over South America and it was very green because of the Amazon. Um, and it was just how... You know, he so he kind of divides the book into these colors and, and, and you know, the photos are just phenomenal. Um, I just can't, I, I'm not doing it justice by sitting here blabbering about it. But like definitely pick up the book, <laughs> take a look at it. You will not be sorry. Um, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous book. Um, but right. Terry Verts, he's he's a colonel in the Air Force. He has been uh, on a couple different missions. He went up actually on. Um, I, I guess one of the last space shuttle missions, he was on the Endeavor. He was the pilot of the Endeavor. Uh, and then he went mm-hmm. up on, from Russia, he went up on a Soyuz to uh, the uh, the space station. Um, and so combined, he's been up there 213 days. And uh, wow. he, you know, we... we I, a lot of these astronauts become famous for one weird little thing that they do. You know, we talked to Chris Hadfield, right. obviously he became famous for singing space oddity when he was up there. Yeah. Um, uh, Colonel Verts was up there when Leonard Nimoy passed. And he, so if you've ever seen the picture of the hand giving the live long and prosper Vulcan salute with the looking down on mm-hmm. the earth, that was him. That was his hand. He took that picture oh, the day awesome. of uh, it, it was actually as they were passing over Boston, which is where Leonard Nimoy was from. So he was sort wow. of giving the Vulcan, you know, live long and prosper salute from space <laughs> down on Boston the day that he passed. So, <laughs> Like, can you imagine getting to be able no. to do that? Like you're in space looking down at Earth and you can <laughs> mind blown. Because <laughs> that's where that's where he would have looked from while he was on. The oh, I know, right? Well, they didn't go back to Earth very much, <laughs> but yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, guys, so we're going to go play this interview for you right now. Hope you enjoy. I wanted to start off by talking about your book, uh, View from Above. First of all, I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times, but it is just absolutely gorgeous. Um, I know you were also one of the astronauts who was uh, tasked with the filming for the IMAX film, Beautiful Planet. Um, so I, I guess I'm curious, how much experience did you have with photography, videography, that sort of thing before going to space? And how much training did you get? Well, I appreciate it. And uh, I'll start off by apologizing for my cold that I have right now. Mm. But uh, photography has been a passion of mine since I was a kid. I got a small Konica SLR camera when I was in elementary school and taught myself about exposure and aperture and all that stuff. And I've just loved it since I was little. So when I got to do the Beautiful Planet movie filming, that was just serendipity. It wasn't planned out. It wasn't like, hey, Terry's going to photography, let him do this. It just yeah. worked out that way. And it was it was awesome. So did, did they just, she had, it, you know, with when they were making the film, they had the schedule set up. So it was just, okay, which which missions are going up now? And this these are the astronauts that are going to help out? Yes, it was uh, the IMAX. Um, company Tony Myers, the producer, who's done all the all the various mm-hmm. uh, space IMAX films that you've seen down at the Aerospace Museum. Yep. She um, said, "Hey, we want to do the space film. Here's the dates." And then I just happened to be assigned to my flight. It just it was it was coincidence, but it was pretty awesome because I can remember as a kid, as a nine year old, going to the Aerospace Museum in DC and seeing a movie called To Fly. Oh yeah, of course. It's still be, it's still playing there. <laughs> it's still playing there. That's why I'm an astronaut. I mean, it, it motivated me to become an astronaut. And then here, 40 years later, I got to film one in space, which was pretty amazing. That is incredible. Um, yeah, I know that film really well. I remember it fondly from when I was a kid, and I, and I take my kids to see it now. So it's it's amazing. Um, yeah, that's right. It, it doesn't matter how much experience you have or how good of a photographer you are, though. I mean, IMAX cameras are incredibly different. So, I mean, how much... How much training before takeoff did you have with those cameras? Well, that was one of the funnest parts of my training was working with um, our director of photography, James Nyhouse, and Tony, the producer. Uh, Sound, we had the guy that developed the Star Wars uh, blaster, laser blaster sound. Nice. came in to to teach us about movie sound. So... I really enjoyed the process of learning cinematography. It's it's a lot different than just taking pictures. Yeah. And the camera, the, one of the unique things about this movie is that it was filmed with digital cameras for the first time. All the other space IMAX movies that you've seen, um, Hubble, Space Station, uh, The Dream is Alive, all those have been filmed with the big, bulky, 70-millimeter wet film IMAX camera that you're talking about. Right. This, this movie we filmed with a Canon 1DC. It's just a professional still camera. We, when you watch the Super Bowl, all the guys are shooting with that. Um, and then also a C500, which is a Hollywood feature film video camera. Mm-hmm. So we had to learn how to use those. But the benefit was, A, they were digital, so we could get a lot more footage done. Um, in the old days, those film cameras were so big they only had three minutes worth of film in them yeah and b you could set the iso for day or night all the old movies were daytime only so this allowed us to do some really amazing night lightning or auroras that kind of thing at night sure i'm sure there's a lot a lot of stuff you couldn't have gotten otherwise well i also took a gopro out the russians had a had a little gopro box that they built to protect it so literally you know $300 $300 GoPro from Best Buy. They, they caught one of those, put it in a container, and when I went outside on my spacewalks, I did three spacewalks, and um, I brought a GoPro. And the, the little spacewalking scene that Tony put together is really good in the movie. That's amazing. I didn't realize that that was, that was what you were using for that. Um, wow. Not not sponsored by GoPro, but you know, <laughs> they, no, they work in I'm, space I'm, and underwater and everywhere. <laughs> they, work, they work everywhere. I've never talked to anybody from the company, but that's what we use. That's incredible. So, I mean, how did you split your time, though, between the science that you were there to do and the, your own personal photography and the videography for the film? I mean, you had a lot going on. Yeah, so the, the film... Um, Beautiful Planet was filmed almost entirely in my spare time. They had one hour. NASA gave us one hour of scheduled time. Oh my god! Equipment, fan time, everything else was like in the evenings or weekends, or it was just on our spare time. 
the um, the normal photography, though, I ended up taking over 300,000 pictures. It was the NASA, the people who count these things told me it was the most ever still images from an astronaut. Jeez. Um, and I made a book, like you mentioned, my View From Above book. It's a National Geographic photography book. But it also is full of stories from space. It's yeah. not a memoir. It's a What's It Like in Space um, book. And again, that was entirely on your spare time. They don't ever schedule you time for photography. So some guys are really into it, and that's what they do in their spare time. Other guys are less into it, and they don't do as much. But for me, it was what I really enjoyed doing, and it's how you share the excitement and adventure of spaceflight with people back on Earth. Yeah. So something that's always frustrated me, and I'm sure, I'm not sure if you had this experience, but you go on vacation, you take a bunch of pictures, you come home, and the photos just don't do it justice. You're like, oh, that canyon looked better, or that building looked cooler, and, and, you know, through the camera, you know, the the lens, it didn't, the picture just doesn't look like my memory. Do you have that same experience when you look at your pictures from space? Oh, completely. Yeah. I tried to capture what it's like to be in space in book format and view from above. Yeah. And I think the IMAX movie was the same thing. If you want to see a space mission in a movie format, Beautiful Planet is the way to do it. But even even so, it's still not the same. There's some emotional component to looking out and seeing a sunrise or a billion stars in the galaxy or this blue turquoise of the Bahamas. There's something emotional about that that like you're I had the sense that I was seeing things that humans weren't meant to see that I was seeing like what God sees yeah <laughs> and it was it's you just can't capture that without actually because I think floating is there you have peripheral vision mm-hmm. and your brain knows it's like okay that's my planet down there and that's not any thought that you've ever had while you're on earth okay yeah as so, long as you're on earth you're on your planet but when you're in space you're not and, yeah and so it's few powerful. people have that have that perspective, have that point of view that, you know, that's my planet and I'm not on it. Right. It's really a powerful and that's why, you know, doing a book or doing speaking, my kind of my second career is, is speaking now. And I, I just like to share that experience with folks. Do you think that you were prepared for that? I mean, all the training that NASA gave you, a lot of it was technical, a lot of it was getting prepared for weightlessness, but were you prepared for right. that emotional reaction? You know, I, I you can't be. I, I had spent a lifetime looking at astronaut pictures and reading their stories. And I, ever since I was a kid, I've loved this stuff. And I worked in the astronaut office for almost 10 years before my first flight. So I taught, I had a hundred good friends who had done it and told me about it. And then I remember my first, well, my first, you have to read chapter one, not all my <laughs> first views, but the first time we, we saw earth during the day, was a few minutes after launch, we were going over the North Atlantic and the sun came up and I remember just, you know, I've never seen that shade of blue before, the blue sunrise. Um, it was really astonishing yeah. and it really surprised me because I thought I was prepared, but I, I really hadn't been. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry for the pause there. It's just I'm trying to imagine myself in that situation, and I, I'm not even sure how I would handle that, you know, because you, like you're saying, that's not something that you can prepare yourself for, you know. The technical things, like you can simulate weightlessness, you can you can simulate disasters and, and how you're going to respond to them, but just that gut instinctual reaction of looking out the window and 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 seeing the planet or seeing these colors and these places from above that you might have only seen from photos. I'm not sure how I would have reacted to that. Yeah. It's, you want to just like smile and yell and look out the window (laughs) and wow, this is awesome. But as I talk about in chapter one of my book, my, it's back to work because I'm a shuttle pilot and we'll do this and that. And my whole seven months in space was sublime, punctuated by mundane it's, you know <laughs> wow this is amazing and now get back to work yeah um, I mean yeah. mundane in quotes I would imagine because your mundane up there is is hardly the rest of our mundane down here or or did you not see it that way was it just sort of like you know like okay yes I'm floating there's you know we're in microgravity but everything else is the same as I would be doing in a lab down on earth well that's no the mundane is still pretty cool like, yeah well, exactly <laughs> yeah when you're on a spacewalk, you're looking at this, you're like, 
God's eye view of the universe and then back to work. But back to work is plugging in cables for the next spaceship and you're doing a spacewalk stuff. So it's still kind of cool stuff, but yeah. it's not work. It's not looking around, just enjoying the view. Sure. It's, you're not the, it's not a pleasure cruise. <laughs> no, 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 no. 99% not. But the 1%, is, it makes it worth it for sure. Yeah. Uh, in the book, you highlight a lot of pictures of um, things that you saw in terms like like hurricanes and frozen landscapes and these extreme environments and, and weather patterns that, you know, you had a unique view of. Um, we, we've are in the middle of right now this, you know, this cold snap on the East Coast. And there's been a lot of uh, natural disasters hitting at least us here in the United States. Did did seeing these things from above or seeing them, you know, sort of in their whole, seeing an entire hurricane at once did that did that affect you in any way did that make you change how you see things down here on earth well it 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 entirely did i i actually named chapters of my books after colors like white or Mm -hmm. colors because i i actually know the world now by colors which is weird because i've done quite a bit of traveling in the air force i've lived overseas and um you kind of know places by food and the people and the Eiffel Tower, and that you know, the, that's the way we think about places on Earth. Yeah. But there was this one experience. I just um, attached Node Three and then Cupola during my first shuttle flight. Cupola is a seven-windowed module mm-hmm. you can look out on the universe. It's like the thing where Darth Vader was standing, looking out. It, it's exactly that same shape. I love that description. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's just this bay window. So. We had all the shutters open and I was inside the module working and all of a sudden everything turned like pink, red inside the station. Um, and I thought, wow, this is crazy. So I went and looked out the window and we were flying over Australia. Uh. And the, the Australian outback is very red. I mean, now when I think of Australia, I just think of red because that's where I saw it. Um, the blues of the ocean. Uh, when I launched in February of 2010 for the first time, there was a really bad snowstorm on the East Coast. I'm sure people there still remember it. Yeah. In fact, a lot of my friends and family couldn't make it to my launch because they got snowed in. And um, when I think of Canada or Russia, I think of white because, man, there's like thousands of miles of snow. It just never ends. Um, so I, I learned, I, now I think of the Earth by colors, which is something that I didn't think of before. Yeah, that's remarkable. Um, I wonder if that's part you you said before that you didn't have enough faith to be an atheist and that one of the conclusions <laughs> you came to in space yeah. was that there there must be something. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I can. And um the uh, amazingness of the physical universe. I mean just looking out seeing these billions of stars. Seeing the beautiful planet. I mean Earth is really spectacularly beautiful and it's it's just amazing and then on top of that we do a lot of experiments especially um on ourselves (laughs) so i got to do a lot of ultrasounds on my heart and on my brain and on my eye these laser scans of my eye um so i learned a a little bit about biology We, we did a lot of other biology experiments and just understanding how complicated life is something as simple as a single cell organism is so complicated and one of the analogies they use i have this garage and every time i go out there it's never clean like it never cleans itself (laughs) (laughs) it's me who has to clean the thing and like stuff just doesn't organize itself without some poor guy going out with a broom um if you put a pile of silicon on a rock and left it for a billion years and there was wind and lightning and stuff it would never turn into a glass like something as simple as a drinking glass would just never make itself out of nothing and when you think about how complicated life is and the universe the scientist in me says that that just can't happen on its own so that's that's kind of where i came up with that quote i don't have enough faith to be an atheist Mm -hmm. that's amazing and so did did uh did seeing the colors and the, you know, I mean, from up there, you can't necessarily see the planet, I mean, the, 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 the structures and the cities and the man-made objects that are down on the planet, but you can see how the earth has formed itself. Um, do you think, is that part of it as well? Seeing how everything fits together and how the blues interact with the greens and the whites and the reds? 
Yeah, I think that's part of it. It's such a, um, I mean, from the smallest um, micro scale. I mean, a lot. One of the things in physics is called string theory, where physicists are trying to understand the absolute smallest of small subatomic particles, and then you take that to the kind of the human scale of just geology or weather patterns or whatever, and then you take that to the cosmos of solar systems and galaxies and we're one of the experiments we did is trying to figure out what um, the universe is made of there's this thing called ams alpha magnetic spectrometer and it looks for antimatter and that antimatter tells the physicists how much uh, dark matter and dark energy is out there in the universe so first of all we don't even really know what dark matter or dark energy is and second of all, we think that more than 90% of the universe is made of it. So, <laughs> like, we we don't even know what almost everything is in the universe. And, it's kind of humbling, and, isn't it? <laughs> it's humbling, and I and I love science. I mean, I totally love it. It's like, it's our, it's our grand adventure to try and figure out how life works and how the universe works. And there's just so much we don't know. Yeah. The more we learn, we, the more we realize we don't even know what we don't know. Yeah. Like when Isaac Newton figured out F equals MA, they probably all patted themselves on the back and they thought, all right, we got the whole thing figured out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then, then Einstein came around and figured out that was wrong. So yeah, it's it, fun. Science is fun. Every answer gives us five more questions that we didn't even realize to ask beforehand. But I, but you know, the, I guess the philosopher in me or the, I hate to use the term religious. I, I'm a Christian, but, um, it, it, to me, it just points to a creator. It's just such yeah. an amazing thing. And like I said, even the simplest thing of making a glass or cleaning the garage, those things don't happen without somebody doing it down here on the planet. Yeah. Well, so now I'm curious. Are we alone? <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's such a gigantic universe. There's so many stars out there. You would you would think there's somebody out there. Yeah. Um, but it's also such a huge... You, the scales are so vast. Um, you know, if we if we launched something as fast as we possibly could with the biggest rocket we had, it would take tens and tens and tens of thousands of years to get to the nearest star, and then it would just be like a little small, not useful thing that we launched. Um, it just takes so long to get somewhere. I, I I don't know. It's a big universe, but I think I don't think life just happens on its own. So. Yeah. It's a good question. It's fun. It's fun looking. It is. It's, fun. Sure. It, it's a fun. It's a fun question to ask, and I, yeah. I, I absolutely believe that we're not. I think there's got to be, you know, just like you said, the numbers of planets and the numbers of stars. Um, right. Th- there has it's to be. Like, but whether we'd ever encounter that other life is a, is a totally different question because of those, those vast distances. There, there's probably some alien doing a podcast interview right now. Right now. <laughs> it's amazing to think about. <laughs> yeah. Um, how can you describe a spacewalk to someone who will never know what zero G feels like? So a spacewalk is ninety nine percent work <laughs> and one percent and one percent like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm seeing this. The the process of getting in the suit takes a couple of hours. You have to go through the depressurization protocol because you get the bends, which is what scuba divers have yep. to deal with when you change uh, pressure. And the, uh, the tasks are um, really mapped out. Like there, there's a lot of studying that has to go into it because whenever you're outside, it's dangerous. If you cut your suit, uh, you could die or if a little micrometeorite hits you, it could kill you. So there's a lot of things that could go wrong. So we don't want to like waste time out there. So, I felt like I was on the clock. It, it felt like the NFL draft times a thousand. Mm. I I never so I took more pictures than anybody over three hundred thousand pictures, on and I brought a camera out on each of my spacewalks, and I had it right on my chest pack, so it was pretty accessible. Mm-hmm. And I only took I only took about ten pictures per spacewalk, so wow. that just gives you an idea of. I'm, I'm that annoying dad that's constantly taking pictures. I just got back from Colorado with my kids, and I took a thousand pictures. But when I was out on my spacewalk, I didn't have time. Yeah, and uh, it's it, yeah. It, I was gonna say it's physically demanding. It's it's you're in this big, bulky, on Earth that weighs about 400 pounds. Um, 
it's pressurized. It's really hard to move in. So it's like a, a physical workout, big time, just moving around in the thing. Yeah. Are Are you a scuba diver? I am. Uh, yeah, I so, have a license. I've done it a little bit. So I am as well. And I, the, you know, the first time I ever went, there was that initial like freak out moment where like. Yeah. I don't know what's up, what's down. I can move in three dimensions, and I just kind of panicked until I I got my bearings and I I kind of just calmed down. Did you have that? Like you step out of the hatch and there's just like an initial freak out. So I had been briefed on that, and some guys have different reactions the first time you go out the hatch. So I went the very first thing I did. I went out the airlock. I have a you have this little tether. It's about three feet long or a few feet long. And I put the tether on the handrail, and I immediately let go. So I, I go outside. About five seconds later, I put a tether down, and I just let go. And I looked around. I'm like, okay, I'm floating. I'm not mm. falling. I'm good to go. And then I picked it up and went on with my business. So I wanted to, I guess, give myself a mental um, reassurance that I wasn't going to just fall down to earth and I never, I, so I never had that, but I was concerned about it. And so I took that active measure to make sure I didn't have it. Huh. You mentioned that, you know, just moving is really difficult when you're in the pressurized suit. What's the, what do you think the hardest thing to do in, in not, maybe not on a spacewalk in the suit, but just in zero G, like what's the hardest thing to do that, that is every day. You don't even think about it down here. Keep track of stuff. Yeah. Like you've got, <laughs> oh God, if you. So there's, you were always doing mechanical tests. Half your day is wrenches and tools, fixing stuff. And um, like finding things. You have to go around the station, open up this drawer, open up that drawer. It, sometimes they're right there and it takes you one minute. And sometimes it takes you like 30 minutes or an hour. It's like the most frustrating thing, just finding stuff. Yeah. So keeping track of things. Unless it's Velcroed or in a Ziploc bag or in your pocket or tethered or something. Yeah. One of the stories I tell, and, and again, in chapter one, <clears throat> adapting to zero G, I had my head behind a panel and I was working on this thing in the space shuttle. And I took my flashlight and tucked it in my shirt um, and did some work. And then I floated out of, from behind the panel and I couldn't find my flashlight. And I looked around, looked around, <clears throat> looked up I mean the thing just floated away hmm. and so I went about my business and a few minutes later my like my shoulder blade was itching and I reached back and it had floated around my polo shirt and <laughs> floating in between my shoulders oh no <laughs> keeping track of stuff is really is really hard it's, yeah it doesn't they don't stay where you put things right like they can just float away <laughs> my, yeah my cup of tea is sitting on my table right now but in space, that thing will be gone. <laughs> As with all the tea and you know, the little little globules everywhere, right? Yes, exactly. That's why we have little uh, um, Capri Sun kind of yeah. silver bags of drinks. Yeah. I mean, talking about things that we take for granted here, you know, there's a, a great photo of you just, just sleeping, um, which is a totally different experience when you're up there. Did that was that hard to get used to? Can you talk about that? Like t getting used to just yeah. that, you know, falling asleep in a weird position, being strapped in. I was worried about that. I thought sleeping would be hard, but for me, they actually did an experiment. They had this little actor watch. It was like the original Fitbit or Apple Watch mm -hmm. uh, back seven or eight years ago, and so they measured my sleep, and I am out. I mean, when I'm sleep in space, I am out. So I have they have a sleeping bag for you. And that is really good because I zipped it up tight, so I felt like I had covers on. It's just that's what, as a human, I, I I like to sleep like that. Yeah. And I would put my head and my arms and everything inside the sleeping bag. And on the station, you have your own um, like sleeping quarters. It's about a telephone booth size thing. If you have any kids listening, ask your parents what a telephone booth is. <laughs> um, and I would. I would sleep without Velcroing myself to the wall or without bungeeing myself or whatever. I would literally just float. And inside this little telephone booth, the fans inside my crew quarters would spin me around. And every morning I woke up like in the corner, um, in the, just the way the fan blew me. But it was so good to just sleep floating yeah. without being attached at all. Was it hard for you to readjust when you came back? 
was um, so after my first flight, the the sensation I have was overwhelmingly heavy. I like I felt like I weighed a thousand pounds. I felt hmm. like everything was super heavy. After my second flight, and the first flight too, but the second flight was over two hundred days. So I, I felt really dizzy. I mean, like the first day, I didn't. I I could walk around. They made us lay down on our stomach and stand up as fast as we can and close your eyes and walk one foot in front of the other, which I can't do on earth. I mean, normally I have Mm -hmm. a hard time doing that. So I could do all these crazy tests they made us do, but man, it was dizzy, Mm -hmm. but I recovered so fast. Like the second day I was dizzy. The third day I was like a little bit, barely dizzy. And by the fourth day I was fine. It was, I really was shocked how fast I recovered. Um, I've, I've heard you say that, you know, when you, before you went up that you were never really scared of, you know, the technical danger of, of riding the rocket to space and sitting on all that fuel, but rather of just, just making a mistake in what you were supposed to be doing. Um, so now that you've had some distance and you, you know, you're retired and you can look back, what was the biggest mistake you made? Biggest like technical error. Yeah, I mean the the thing that you were scared of, you know, is that like I'm I'm just gonna yeah. goof up and I'm gonna put somebody at risk, or I'm just you know these are billions of dollars of equipment at my fingertips. Like, was there anything that you just look back on, and you kind of cringe, and you think like, oh, that I did kind of screw up right there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things, it's kind of funny, but it's not really that funny. There's a lot of uh, we call it life support systems, like the water and air and bathroom, the recycling systems that we yeah. have. And it's not rockets, it's not launch and rendezvous and spacewalks, it's plumbing, right? But one time, the the sequence that I did something in, like, could have screwed that up. And like the one thing you don't want to break in space is the toilet. So <laughs> I do, I do, I do remember going, oh, but it turned out that it was fine. Um, but it's funny, I hadn't thought of this for a while, but I do remember screwing up the plumbing one day going, Ooh, <laughs> <coughs> Houston, I flew through the switch and they looked at it and it ended up being okay. <laughs> uh, good. Cause you were about to have a lot of unhappy, uh, yeah. companions yeah. up there. <laughs> yeah. You're, you drop everything else until you get that fixed. So. <laughs> I don't, I don't doubt it. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you were just starting out your career. Now, would you be in line for that trip to Mars? So after every space flight, we go to Congress and the Hill and we talk to congressmen and senators and politicians and tell them about what we did in space. Because other guys are writing checks, so we want to let them know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And after my last flight, I talked to about 20 different senators and congressmen. And the, the one message that I had for all of them was, this isn't about the rocket science, it's about the political science. Um, going to Mars, going back to the moon, whatever it may be, we, you know, NASA can do that stuff. It's, it's really hard. We have really, really smart people. It's dangerous. It's never going to be safe, but it can be reasonably safe. But we can't, none of that will ever happen unless our political science gets straightened out. And what we've had in America for the last few decades is this Republican. Democrat back and forth where one president says, let's do this. And then when the next guy gets elected, he doesn't like the previous president. So he cancels his programs. Right. And then eight years later, the next guy comes in and he cancels what the last guy did. And that's, that's not a good way to run a railroad or a space program. Now the Chinese, on the other hand, don't have Republicans and Democrats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have the communist party of China and they can make a decision and stick with it. So, the political advantage, we, we have all the technical advantage, we have innovation, we have everything that we need on that side. But that political advantage may be the most important thing to actually pick a goal and stick to it. So we've been 20 years away from Mars ever since Neil and Buzz landed on the moon. Um, but the reality is we're never going to get to Mars unless we get our uh, ducks in a row and we're able to pick, pick a plan and stick to it. So do you think that you know, with companies like SpaceX and Orbital and, and the private companies that aren't 
aren't tied to whoever's in office in that federal funding. Is that is that going to get us there closer? Do you think that that's a positive development? Well, I think it's a really positive development. And um, Blue Origin, I think, is, I mean, SpaceX has been amazing. They actually brought me two cargo ships worth of underwear and food, so I love SpaceX. <laughs> um, Blue Origin may be the most amazing of all because Jeff Bezos doesn't tweet. He's like the anti-Donald Trump. He's completely secretive. He doesn't talk about what's going on, but he just built a gigantic, massive assembly building at the Kennedy Space Center. Yeah, um, I saw it a few months ago. I was like, impressive my shuttle crewmate works for him actually is one of one of their uh, one of their engineers program manager guys so the beauty of the private companies like you said they require funding and jeff bezos has funding um elon musk has funding and and then they can do the right thing and, and take the risk they need to take without the massive overhead of bureaucracy and and uh you know the that the bad aspect that comes with government programs. Yeah. But that being said, the mission to Mars is going to be so, um, a private company on its own is not going to be able to do that. It's just going to require too much money. I think it's going to have to be a public private partnership. Now the yeah. rockets they build can certainly be a part of that. And private companies have been involved in everything since the Apollo Mercury days. I mean, those vehicles were all built by private companies that had, shareholders and and uh you know profit and earning statements and but there was obviously a much bigger government role um they weren't using their own money to develop rockets the way spacex and yeah. blue origin are today yeah it, it feels like you know back then you know mercury and apollo and all all the the space travel when it was in its infancy it, it, it took, you know, I wasn't alive during the 60s when most of that was happening, but it, you know, from what I've read and from what I understand that it was, it was this seminal moment in, in history and, you know, world history, but certainly, but U.S. history that kind of brought everybody together in the 60s. A lot of things didn't make sense and people were getting torn apart. I'm wondering if you think that, you know, now that, you know, there are companies like, like you were saying, like, uh, Orbital and SpaceX and, you know, Jeff Bezos and, you know, they we can maybe get this public-private partnership together and actually get the ducks in a row to get to space. Do you think that that journey to Mars could be the moon landing for the 21st century? Like, would that be something that brings us together again? I think, um, I've actually written some articles about this, and I I do think that the journey to Mars, not to be, to quote the NASA plan, but it is a journey, and I think that's going to be the 21st century goal. And I think that um, I'll go back to the space station. It's the International Space Station. And right. After each chapter five, there's this one emergency that we had in space, a view from above that that was it was a great example of us working with the Russians mm-hmm. during really, really, really bad times on Earth. I mean, U.S.-Russian relations have not been great now for several years, and in the middle of that, we were. Um, trying to survive this super dangerous what we thought was an ammonia leak the russian deputy prime minister called us it was a great moment and space can do that it can unite us and um i think going to mars that has to be an international project for a couple reasons a you can use the resources of multiple countries which is important and b if it's a one country only thing it's so easy to cancel mm-hmm. um and nasa cancels almost every that's the only project that it has. Like, we we did this big up upgrade to the space shuttle that got canceled. We had an X thirty. Well, there's a whole we could go down an alphabet soup of acronyms that have been canceled. Um, the International Space Station wasn't canceled. Yeah. It famously passed the Congress by one vote uh, <clears throat> back in the nineties um, by one vote because it was an international program and they yeah. didn't want to, you know, turn that off. So I think the journey to Mars has to be international. I think it will be a big unifying moment fingers crossed on that um so aside from writing gorgeous books and and speaking and telling your stories and talking to schmoes like me how do you uh how do you occupy your days what are you up to (laughs) well the last couple months have been just crazy travel with uh the book tour the book just came out you from above just came out a few months ago 
Um, and then I had some different speeches I was doing. And then I went to Antarctica, which was an amazing oh. trip. That was definitely a bucket list item. Yeah, uh, mine too. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I highly recommend it if you get a chance. Um, we went all the way to the South Pole. It was pretty cool. Oh, Didn't get wow. to see. We were supposed to see Emperor Penguins, but there was some bad weather. So Still. for me, it's been, <laughs> yeah, but for me, it's been traveling. Yeah. Um, but uh, see, Seeing all those to, colors from ground level, huh? It's, yeah, it, there's a lot of places. Um, I've been talking with my manager about hopefully doing a TV show where we talk about this is, Earth from space, and then we go to those places and see it from the ground. Oh, that'd be amazing. Um, I think it'll be a fun, a fun program to do. So, I've got a book, another book, or several in my brain, and um, TV show in my brain, and there's a lot of speaking, just trying to share the. Uh, you know, there are leadership and that kind of thing. Lessons learned. There's certainly safety lessons learned from space, but just National Geographic has a speaker series called Nat Geo Live. It's really cool. I never knew about it until I was worked for them. But yeah. um, uh, I've been, you know, sharing the space experience with folks. So it's been, it's funny. I'm retired. I'm literally retired. Like I get a retiree check from the Air Force, <laughs> and I'm and I'm like so much more busy than I ever was before. But it's yeah. it's fun stuff, and it's doing stuff that I want to do, which is great. That's fantastic. Um, final question, and then I'll let you go. So the road to becoming an astronaut, as you know, is one of the hardest things I'd imagine a person can do physically, mentally, in any way you want to measure it. Um, I'm sure you had your setbacks and frustrations along the way. How did you find the grit, the determination, just, just to keep going? Like, this was your goal, and you're going to keep going. So the first book I read in kindergarten was about Apollo. And ever since then, I, I wanted to be an astronaut. So my whole life, like I wanted to be an astronaut and that's a ridiculous goal. And of course, no one gets to be one. And I, my mom and my dad didn't even go to college, you know? Mm. So I didn't have any, there were no astronauts in my family. Yeah. Um, but I learned about what was required. And I just, I always did the steps. You know, I learned that being a pilot's a good thing. I went to the Air Force Academy. Um, you need a technical degree. Being a test pilot's a good thing. So I always kind of checked the boxes that I needed, which most importantly were boxes that I wanted to do anyway. I mean, if I would have just been a pilot, I would have been a happy man. Yeah. So I did things that I loved. And then I didn't... Then I think the name of my next book is going to be Don't Tell Yourself No. Um, a lot of my friends told themselves no. They didn't apply. They said, oh, that's too crazy. No one gets picked. Or you don't have enough experience, wait for the next time. Yeah. And I never did that. I just said, you know what, this is what I want to do. I'm going to apply. If they tell me no, I don't get it. I'll apply next time. But it was that, I think it was that kind of willingness to do something crazy um, that a lot of other folks weren't willing to do that allowed me to be in a position to get picked. And then once you get, like, getting the interview was kind of the very last stop. They interviewed 120 people for my class of 17 astronauts. Mm -hmm. And once, once you get down to that level, everybody's good. Everybody, you're all your fellow interviewees are all like top of their field, smart, nice, big, strong, better looking than you are. You know, everybody's <laughs> great. So at that point it comes down to a luck. You're, you know, you have to be healthy. You have to pass the medical. It's the hardest thing. And then B, I, you know, they just have to want to pick you. They, have to, you have to be the kind of person they want to spend weeks or months together with in space. Yeah. Um, but I think the key is don't tell yourself no. And that's something that so many people just shackle themselves without ever trying or going for it. Yeah. Um, in every field, I would life. imagine, too. Look, look you know, most people aren't going to be astronauts, but there's lots of other things you can do, uh, relationships or to be a doctor or write that book or whatever it is that you want to do in life. Um, yeah. That's, that's a, that's a lesson learned that I think a lot of people need to overcome. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think too many people sell themselves short and they say, ah, I'm not good enough. Or, ah, like you were saying, like, I'm not qualified enough. I'm just going to wait or wait till tomorrow. Yeah. And you know what? I meet a lot of people and they, they're like, Oh, Hey, I applied for this astronaut class or I got interviewed or whatever. And I'm, and I, I'm like, that's cool, man. Congrats. That's really hard to get to that level. You tried for it. They feel like, you know, Hey, I tried. Yeah. Okay. 
want to be an actor, most people aren't going to be Tom Hanks. But (laughs) if if Tom Hanks never tried, he never would have gotten there. So sometimes just the process uh, is fulfilling as well as the end result. It's an amazing lesson to learn, and I think it's one that more people need to need to take to heart too. So it's good to hear. It's good to hear reiterated, even if you're not an astronaut. Yeah. <laughs> right, and you know, it, even the small, you know, there's victory in small things too. You don't have to just be astronauts, but it's a tough lesson. I know, I've known so many people who um, who would have been better off had they learned that lesson. <laughs> yeah. Terry, thank you so much for your time. This has just been a, just a pleasure, and, and it's it's inspiring. And I, I was one of those kids who wanted to be an astronaut when they were a kid, and and I won an art award for drawing myself as in a, doing a spacewalk, and that was like fourth grade, and it never went any farther than that. So, uh, it's one of those un, unfulfilled dreams of mine. So it's it's amazing to talk and hear the stories and look at the pictures and read your book, and and uh, so thank you, thank you for sharing everything. Well, it's been fun to do it. You know, with the the uh, commercial space tourism that's coming online hopefully in the next few years, getting at least a few minutes in space is something that's going to be affordable for a lot of people. So maybe uh, maybe that'll be something you can do. It's still on the list. It's still a bucket list item. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so it's been much. Great. It's, been great. it's been a great interview. Okay, so the only thing I think... I think that should happen is Hadfield and yeah. him, Terry Virts, should have a phot- photography off. Oh, wow. They should have yeah. a competition. See who's yeah. better. Well, <laughs> does Hadfield have a photo book? Yeah, so you does. can just compare the books. I mean, that's kind of what they're doing, right? I don't know. I think we need to have them in person. We need to arrange it. Next uh, next NASA social, they're going to have yeah. us there and we're going to have And we this, could we could send the two of them off on like a photo scavenger hunt be like, here's a list of things <laughs> we want you to take pictures of and then we will vote, we will, you know, judge your photos on, on you know, a detailed list of, of, you know, quality and and how well you captured your subject. <laughs> what do you think the odds of getting uh, them to agree no. to that? No, they, they will <laughs> not. Zero, no, zero right? absolutely zero. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I have such good ideas all the time. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you so much for coming back every week. As we mentioned at the top of the po- of the podcast, if you could go and leave us an iTunes review, that would be fantabulous. It's made, I, I didn't make that word up, but I never say it, and awesome. I just said it. So that would be awesome of you if you would go do that. Um, it really helps us out. And if you uh, want to listen to more episodes, make sure to go grab them. And then follow us on Facebook and Twitter at the GBB Podcast. I am Justin at 140 Justin C. I am Jamie at the Roarbots. And we'll see you next time right here. Same place. Same time. Well, maybe not the same time. Same place every week. (laughs) See you next time. (laughs) This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.